Psalm 73 that we just sang, and uh, we'll spend some time prayer in prayer and confession together. It says in Psalm 73, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, we come before you as a people that praise you and worship you, but also as a people that often fail, that often are like beasts, that don't speak and give glory to you the way that we should. Father, we confess that. We confess our sin. We confess our stubbornness. And we come to you with repentant hearts turning back to you. Father, we pray that you'd renew our faith, that you'd renew our trust, and allow us to trust in you and you only. We thank you for the provision for our sin that you made in your son Jesus. We thank you that we're forgiven. We thank you that we are your children, and that you've reconciled us to yourself. Help us to worship in light of that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's get 
continue this time of uh, confession. It's confessing to God who He is and who we know that we are, and asking Him to make us like Him. So sing these words together. Lord, you have my heart, and I will search for yours. Jesus, take my life and lead me on. Lord, you have my heart, and I will search for yours. Let me be to you a sacrifice. And I
Let's stand together and sing this last song. God, we thank you for being good to us. Lord, we proclaim that you are powerful. God, help us to sing these songs from our hearts, from hearts that are thankful for who you are. It's your name I pray.
God, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for your power. God, for rescuing us, sending your son to conquer sin and death. God, we thank you that you have the power to change us, God, to make us like you. Help us to desire to know you more. God, to hear your word and to um, actively pursue following your instructions and um, loving your, your word. That's your name I pray. Amen. I keep hearing clicking and popping. It was just going on all morning, so it's really been smooth tonight, actually. Um, if you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews 4, we're going to continue the series that we've started in the book of Hebrews uh, called A Better Savior. And what we've looked at in the book of Hebrews, if you've been with us, and if not, I'll catch you up a little bit. What we've seen in the book of Hebrews is we've got this author who is interpreting, exegeting, unpacking, whatever word you want to use. He's unpacking the whole Old Testament and showing how all of those things were great. All those things were beautiful and glorious and, and led us to God. But they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus is the better fulfillment of, of all of these images and shadows and types and things that went before in the Old Testament. Last week we looked specifically at the idea of rest. right? The rest that we enjoy on the Sabbath. The rest that we enjoy entering a promised and protected and bountiful land. And we said that ultimately we find that rest in Jesus. That he's the ultimate deliverer. And even in a broken world where we're not really at rest, we can somehow by faith enter that rest now, even as we continue to struggle. And what we saw at the end of last week was that there's this, this power that God's Word has in our life. We looked at these verses in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, and I want to read those to you again to just remind you again what it said, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the Word of God has this power to cut away any hiding or pretending that we're going to try to do. In verse 13 it even says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We talked last week about how that word exposed literally means the neck being pulled back uh, for execution. That we are under judgment. But then we said we have hope though, right? Because Jesus is told to us to be that sacrifice that took our place. He's the one that took that judgment for us. That's the story of the rest of the book of Hebrews. That's the story of the rest of the New Testament. And this week we're going to see how because he is this priest that makes sacrifice for us, that intercedes for us, we can trust him. This week's title is a, is a better priest. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, this verse that showed that, that we're under judgment, right? We've, we've been discovered. We're, we're naked. We have no, we can't hide anywhere. God sees us. He sees our heart. There's nothing we can do to cover up and pretend any longer, but he sees us. Yet we shouldn't run away, right? We can come to him because he's a faithful high priest, because he loves us, because we don't have to be afraid of this God. So let's pick up in verse 14, and then we're going to read down through verse 10. So 4.14 through 5.10. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look with us, we're on page 1003 in the black Bibles under the chairs. <clears throat> so since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So because Jesus has, has paved the way for us, let's cling to him. 
Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we don't have to be afraid. We're uncovered. We're naked. We don't have any protection, but we don't have to be afraid. We can come to him for grace, for mercy. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So that's what a priest does. A priest is someone who helps bring men to God, helps us relate, helps us reconcile. That's the job of a priest. It says, He acts on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. To quote we've seen before already, talked about the Davidic covenant there fulfilled in Jesus from Psalm 2. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, another messianic psalm, Psalm 110. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk a lot more about who Melchizedek is, what that means in the next few chapters. As we enter today on this idea of Jesus being a better priest, I would say in summary that Melchizedek, uh, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, just means he's not a priest in the order of Levi. And that's how the priesthood ran before. During the Old Covenant, the way Moses set up the law, they were all descendants of Levi. Aaron and Moses were descendants of Levi and Levi was the tribe of priests. What he's saying here is we have a new kind of priesthood in our Messiah. We'll get into later on who this Melchizedek guy was, not today in, in later chapters. Why don't you pray for me and we'll ask God to teach us tonight. Father, we thank you for teaching us and giving us your word. I pray that you would help us to be clear, help us to understand what you're saying to us. And Father, we pray that you would shape us by it, that, um, that we wouldn't run away, but that we would just be willing to submit to you, submit to your word, and allow your spirit to, to shape us and to form us and to change us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as Protestants, we, we believe very strongly in what Luther articulated as the priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard of this, this doctrine? The priesthood of all believers says that it is our job as followers of Christ to be this kind of character that brings people to God. That's our role as Christians, as God's people. Really what we see even that that was there in the Old Testament. Peter quotes Joshua and in the Old Testament. In Joshua and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, God said, I've set up a people and I want my people to be a whole kingdom of priests. But that's really always been the design of God's people. Both in the Old Covenant when they had special ordained priests that made these sacrifices, he still wanted all of his people to be priests. And now again in the New Testament. He wants his whole people, he wants all of us to be priests in the sense that it's our job to bring people 
to God. It's our job to sit with each other and comfort each other with the words of God's grace and the words of forgiveness and bring uh, each other back to God. Help us to see who he really is. Help us to approach his throne of grace. That's our job. In today's passage, though, we see that Jesus is, he's the ultimate priest, right? He's the perfect one. He's the one that, that ultimately does it uh, better than any other, and that's why we call him the better priest. In some traditions and some different denominations, they, you know, they have different terms for their people, and in some traditions, they still have what you call confession, where people will go to a priest to confess their sins. And in a, a great piece of modern literature that I don't know if y'all are familiar with, there's a a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. Have y'all ever heard of that show? You're familiar with that? Okay. Everybody Loves Raymond. This was actually a show I studied uh, in my family counseling classes because it's such a picture of dysfunction. Um, so if you've seen the show, I, I, don't, I don't offer it as a model to live by, right? I really offer it as a model not to live by. And, and we studied it from that angle that it just kind of showed all the things that can go wrong in a family, right? All the ways that families should not interact. Uh, you know, and humor comes out of that, but it, it can also be sad sometimes as well. In this one episode, Raymond has gone to his priest to confess to his priest about how much he's struggling with his parents and how he just really feels guilty. He's racked with guilt because he's coming uh, to say that, you know, I feel like I've broken the commandment that I'm not honoring my parents. And, and the priest is kind of talking him through it and being a sympathetic priest and kind of trying to relate to him. And talking about how sometimes this priest has also struggled with difficult people. And as the priest starts sharing his own story about struggling with someone difficult, he starts talking about this man in his church named Frank and his wife Marie. And Raymond says, Frank and Marie Barone? And all of a sudden, Raymond realizes that the priest is talking about his parents. That this, this same couple that's been driving Raymond crazy and has driven him to confession has also been driving this poor priest crazy, and the priest finally says, oh, son, you're forgiven. Just go on. Be, be free. Just don't worry about it. You know, he's like, you, you got to pass on this one. And of course, that's not really how forgiveness works. Ultimately, we find forgiveness in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us in the cross. But I thought that episode was a kind of a humorous picture of that sympathy uh, that we are told that Jesus has. This priest could relate to Raymond because this priest has been through the same difficulties that Raymond had been through. He dealt with the same pain that Raymond had dealt with dealing with this difficult couple. And the text here says that Jesus can relate to us. And that's often, that's hard for us to really make sense of, right? Because I think if you are from a Christian background or if you've been in church, you have a, we have a high view of Jesus. We see Jesus as God, and rightly so. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 1. He is divine. He has all authority. And so then it's hard to wrap our mind around the reality that he, he really was a human. He really struggled as we struggle. He really was tempted in ways that we're tempted. He was abused. He was hurt. He went through pain in ways that we have as well. It says, yet without sin, important distinction there, but still, he can relate to us. He is a sympathetic high priest. And as we look at this and understand that he really is the better priest, he really is the perfect priest that we can relate to, that can save us. The, full, the first thing that I think we need to listen to or we need to obey is that we would hold fast to him as our better priest. That's like the first charge that he gives us in this text, the first command that we're given. Starting in verse 14, if you look at 14 and 15, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
The NIV, I think, actually has a better translation. The NIV, it says, hold firmly. I've started using the ESV lately because it's more literal. It, it is kind of more word-for-word translation. But sometimes it frustrates me because it uses this kind of ancient language randomly in places like this. Hold fast merely means hold firmly, right? It means grip tightly. And we are to cling with a death grip to Jesus. Cling to him as if he's our only hope. Because he is our only hope, right? So we're to hold on to him in that way. It says, since he is this great high priest, he's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. So it gives us the big vision. And then it also gives us the earthly vision as well, right? Hold fast to our confession, what we speak, that Jesus is our hope. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here the motivation to hold fast to him is, is both that he is the, the great Jesus, the Son of God Jesus, the pass through the heavens Jesus, and that he is the close, personal, human Jesus that has struggled the way we've struggled. We, we've talked about this many times before. Only Jesus brings all of that together. You know, there are many religions that talk about the otherness and the greatness and the holiness and the godness of God, right? And there's other religions that talk about the closeness and the intimacy and uh, being just like you of God or the gods. But in Christianity, we see the holy other God of the universe who has come close. He's passed through the heavens. He's taken on flesh and he relates to us. He struggles. He's fallen. He's tripped. He's been hurt. He's been abused. Just like you have. Just like I have. It says, yet without sin, right? Important distinction, yet without sin, but he can still sympathize with us in our weakness and in our pain. I, I think we need to, in order to really cling to Jesus, I think we need to get this kind of easy life preaching out of our minds that when we come to him, that everything will just be easy and smooth. You ever heard that before? I mean, you've probably heard preaching like that, that if you come to Jesus, or if you have enough faith, or if you give your preacher enough money, all your problems will be solved, right? I mean, that, that's often what's preached, sadly, in this town and, and all over the world. That really what you need is more faith, and then all your problems will go away, and then you'll have an easy life. Last week we saw, though, that you can find that rest, you can find that taste of paradise and the good life, even while you're still struggling in the wilderness, right? We're still in the wilderness. We saw that last week. You can, by faith, enter into God's rest. And enter into that peace, but we're still going to struggle. It's not over yet. A picture that I thought was really a better picture of what the spiritual life is like and what it means to hold fast to Jesus in the midst of it would be the, uh, the mechanical bull. That's not a good example, right? Because he's not holding fast anymore. He's let go. But any of you ever ridden a bull? Anybody here? Any bull riders? All right, some local folks, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, I did that with some friends back in uh, seminary. My wife and I went out with some friends and we tried the mechanical bull. I wish I could have brought you the picture of me because I've got one somewhere. It's just buried in a box somewhere in our house. I just didn't have time to find it. Um, but I think that's the image, both of the spiritual life, right? It's not easy. You know, when, when you get on the mechanical bull, the guy kind of starts off easy. He kind of lulls you into a false sense of security. But then he speeds it up and it goes a little faster and it goes a little faster and, and eventually throws you off. Life, life is crazy. And the text here is telling us not that life is going to be easy, not that if you come to Jesus all your problems are going to be solved, but in the midst of your problems, in the midst of that chaos, you need to hold fast to Jesus. You need to cling to Him. You need to hold on 
to him. We need to hold on to Jesus and not our fantasies about how great it could be, right? If we just arrive here, if we just get that, if we get that relationship, right? If, if you're single, you may think, if I, if I get in that relationship, then everything will be solved. And you're in a relationship and you realize, okay, that, that's not fixing everything in my life, right? You're married and you think, well, if, if I could just get my spouse to change, then all my problems would be solved, right? Or, or you, you may want kids and you think, if I could just have children, then they would they'd love me and then, then all my problems would be solved, right? And then you have kids and you realize, okay, that's not really how it works, right? There's a lot, of, there's a lot more giving involved than that. The, the solution that, that the author is giving us here is to cling to Jesus, that he's the only thing that's really going to give us hope. Not our fantasies of what it's like to have this addition to our life or that addition to our life or have this changed or have that changed, but to cling to him. Our only hope is to hold fast to Jesus, not to go back to our old habits. As I said, these, these Christians in this time were tempted in the same way that we're tempted, right? When difficult times come, when we feel like we're going through a wilderness, when we feel like we're going through a desert, we're tempted to go back to whatever has worked for us before. We're tempted to go back to whatever's worked for us in the past. Instead of holding fast to Jesus, we think, oh no, the Jesus thing's not working. I better go back to the bottle, right? Or I better go back to trading relationships. Or I better go back to money. If I just make more money, then that's going to take care of things and make me secure. Or I just need to go back to a different relationship. Or I just need to go back to a better reputation or more success in this area of my life. And we go back to things that seem to have worked in the past. The author is here saying, don't, don't fall away, don't go back to those other things, but cling to him. See him in those moments, in those painful moments, as your only hope, as your only lifeline. The next, the next image that he gives us, the next command really that he gives us is, is to draw near. That we should draw near, that we should approach, that we should be willing to come towards, to pursue him. We talked about this before, about this paradox, right, of... of uh, rest being something, in a sense, that we think of as passive, right? But we have to pursue this rest that we have in Jesus, right? Faith is trusting in God to do it all for us. But the author continues to challenge us to pursue Jesus, though. To chase after Him. To give our heart to Him. To give our passions to chasing Him and seeking Him. Because He's good. Really, because He's the God that seeks us. Because He's the God that's come through the heavens to chase after us, to rescue us, to bring us back to himself. Because of all that, we can draw near to God. It says in verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So again, he's, he's going back to explaining this, this is how priesthood works, Right? The whole point of priesthood is to bring you to God. So you should be able to draw near to Him. You should see Him as the God that's, that wants you to have a relationship with Him. He, he's pursuing you in, in this priesthood, in this Jesus that is coming after us. It says every priesthood is set up that way. It's men appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. In 5.2 it says He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since He Himself is beset with weakness. I don't know about you, but I'm, I feel often ignorant and wayward. Wayward means wandering, just means loss. And, and he's saying that a priest, by nature of being human, can, can relate because he is weak also. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice 
for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So he's talking about this old covenant priesthood, this priesthood of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, what Moses had set up. These guys were sinners, and they could relate to us, we're sinners too. They had to offer sins on behalf of the people and also for themselves. It says, and no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Aaron was called to do this. And he's going to say, in the same way, Jesus is a priest that brings us to God. Jesus is a priest that can relate to us, yet without sin. So he's different in that way. And then now he's going to give us another way that Jesus is different. He says, uh, <clears throat> 5.5, again, another sameness. So Christ also did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. So he's appointed also, another thing that's alike, by him who said to him, You're my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's the same kind of priesthood in that his job is to bring us to God. Same kind of priesthood in that he's human and he understands weakness. He's different, though, in that he doesn't sin, yet without sin, right? The, the, the Levi priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron and Moses and what they set up, they were sinners. And so they were making sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. The way, another way it's the same is they're both appointed by God. God appoints those priests. God also appoints this new kind of priesthood that Jesus is. And what he does is he brings us back to these psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, that show us that Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for that fulfills the promises made to David, the king, right? A, a different job title. We're thinking, okay, wait, now you're confusing priesthood and king, right? What, what we see in Jesus is Jesus is this ultimate fulfillment who is prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all of these offices, right? So this author is going to psalms about the Messiah, psalms about a Davidic king that's going to be a son of David, that's going to be this king that's better than King David, that's going to rule forever. And he's saying in these prophecies we see that he's appointed as a priest as well. Again, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this Messiah is going to come, he's going to be in the line of David as a king, but he's also going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Which as I said, we'll get into more later on, but basically when he says Melchizedek, he's just saying, it's not the Levi priesthood. He, he's not in the Levitical priesthood, he's a different line. He is this Davidic Messiah, this guy that's going to be prophet, priest, and king. He's going to fulfill all of these offices, all of these roles, all of these jobs in one person. Because of all this, because of who Jesus is, because he's this better priest, we should draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to I kind of camp out on verse 16 for just a second and show you that really the author, the author is showing us the same thing in chapter 4, verse 16, that he was showing us in those previous verses. Right? Just a couple of verses ago, he was saying, Jesus is both the one that's come through the heavens. He's both the big priest, right? The great high priest and son of God. And he's the near, close, intimate human priest that struggled as we did. Right? He ties those things together. In the same way, he ties these things that we often think of opposite together. He is both just and merciful. He's both the one with the throne. He's also the one that gives us grace. Right? He says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He both has the power and the authority, the one on the throne. He's got this priesthood. He's been designated. He's been promised that he is this Davidic king, that he's this priest in the order of Melchizedek that he's the son of God, he's got this power, he has this authority, but he's also the one that can give us grace. He's also the one that can show us love. I have a picture here of a bed 
just to uh, get your mind on sleeping at night, in the middle of the night. Of course, I don't have a light shining on my bed like that in the middle of the night. It's just all I could find in the, in the computer. But I wanted you to think about uh, at night when, when my wife and I are asleep, my wife is part of hearing. Uh, she's been losing her hearing for about the last five to ten years. So if you ever talk to her and she just kind of smiles and you don't think she understands what you're saying, it's because she probably doesn't understand what you're saying. Um, she can hear decently, but what's happened over the last few years is that the children now come to my side of the bed when they need something, right? They don't go to mommy's side of the bed in the middle of the night because mommy doesn't have her hearing aids in when she's sleeping, so they always come to daddy now. I've become more and more of a light sleeper uh, as this has kind of unfolded in our family. I'm really the one that listens a lot more now at night and, and wakes up when they need something. But part of the, the negative of that is that daddy's not quite as nice as mommy when he gets woken up in the middle of the night. You know, I, mean, I don't know if it's instinct. I'm kind of like thinking I've got to get up and kill somebody and defend my house or, or what, it, what it is. But I kind of I start, you know, and sometimes I, I kind of sound angry or I'm kind of scary. I kind of jump. And so sometimes the kids are afraid to approach, right? And what the author is saying here is, is you don't have to be afraid to approach our Heavenly Father. You don't have to be afraid to approach the God of the universe. He is scary. He is powerful. I mean, He is the all-powerful God of the universe. But He's going to give you grace in your time of need. He's going to give you mercy in your time of need. I mean, I'm just a little bit scary. I mean, I'm not scary like, you know, God of the universe creator. Scary, but I'm just a little bit scary, and that can make the kids hesitate sometimes. But, but when they are sick, or when they do have a nightmare, they'll come and they'll ask me for help. Because they know both that I have the power to help them, right, as their daddy, and also have the gracious heart toward them. I'm inclined to help them because I love them. And that's really the image that we should have of God, only a million times greater, right? That he is both powerful enough to help us, like it talks about in Zephaniah 3.17, this, this God that's mighty to save, and he sings over us. Because he loves us. That's the image that we're getting in this, in this section of scripture again and again. Both that he's the God that's passed through the heavens and he's the sympathetic high priest. That he's the one with the throne. He's the one with the appointed messiahship. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. He's got all of these offices. He has all of this authority. He has this throne. He has this power. But he's the one that we should draw near to with confidence. We should be willing to just come right up to him boldly. And I think the first thing that needs to happen in our own life for that to take place, for us to obey this command, is that we have to change our mind about who God is. He is righteous. He is holy. And we want to, we want to keep the scary verse, right, 4, 12, and 13. We should feel utterly naked and stripped and afraid at, at one level, but we should also have the complete picture that Jesus is the one that made that sacrifice. He is something to be feared. But he is, he's made payment for us. The story of the gospel is that Jesus met God's wrath. That Jesus made purification for our sins. That Jesus took away God's anger and satisfied his perfect justice. So we don't have to be afraid of him anymore. So that we can approach him with confidence. That we can draw near to him. That we can see him as the God of love. The God of intimacy and closeness and gentleness who left the heavens to come after us, who passed through the heavens to rescue us and bring us back to himself. So the first thing you have to do is change your mind. For some of you, I think you've got to make that initial pledge of faith to God. Some of you may have never gone through 
of that step of saying, God, I recognize that I, I can't hide my sin myself. I can't fix what's wrong with me. The problem with me is in me. It's, it's not out there in the world. It's not my spouse. It's not my friends. It's me. And God, I know that I am messed up, but I also know that you're a gracious God that gave yourself for me. That you took all of my sins upon yourself on the cross. That you lived the perfect life that I should have lived. That you've given yourself as my substitute. You, you've got to come to terms with that personally with God. You've got to make a personal decision to trust him. To say thank you for giving yourself for me. Thank you for giving your life for mine. That's what it means to trust in him by faith. You've got to tell him that. You've got to confess that to him. And then our job as Christians is to continue to hold fast that confession. How do you continue to hold fast to that? How do you continue to draw near to God when things are difficult instead of running away and going the other direction? We need to continue to renew your mind. It talks about that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we have to renew our minds, remind ourselves of God's mercies, remind ourselves that He's the one that we can approach in time of need so that we can keep coming back to Him, so that we can keep drawing near and finding the grace and the mercy that we need the help that we need. And so that's the, the admonition here. There's a great book that I read recently called Praying Backwards. One of our small groups is using it. Um, but the word, the, the title is kind of a play on words because what he's saying is we often think of praying in Jesus' name as kind of just like a sign-off, you know, like Roger out, you know, in Jesus' name, like this magic word almost. And, and the author's point is really we should begin in Jesus' name. Again, not as a formula, but our whole prayer should be about Jesus. Our whole prayer should be, God, I can approach you because of what Jesus has done. God, I am approaching you in hopes that Jesus' name will be glorified. And, and it will become greater in my own life. And it will become greater in other people's lives. And so that all of what we are praying is by his grace and for his glory. It's in his name and it's for his name. So I encourage you to begin praying in that way as well. The other thing I want you to think about, just a practical thing, is are you setting aside time to draw near to Him? Are you setting aside time to draw near to God, to approach Him in prayer? It's one thing to pray as you think and to pray throughout the day, but a great way to fuel that is to purpose to pray at certain times of the day or in certain places. I have friends that pray at certain stoplights. I have friends that put prayer cards in their doors. For me, I find that I do the best praying at night when everything's calm and in the morning when everything's calm. In the middle, the day gets a little crazy, right? And it's hard to set aside that time. Our goal should be to pray constantly, to pray without ceasing, but you've got to set aside time to pray. You've got to set aside time to meditate on truth, on what God's Word says, on these things that you're learning and you want to remind yourselves of. And you've also got to set aside time to, to be in fellowship. To, to have community with other people, to meet, to shake hands, but even more importantly than that, to lean on each other, to pray for each other, to cry with each other, to help each other in time of need. These are the things that God says help us to grow, help us to draw near to God as we do that with each other. And just a little free tip, we're not on marriage today, but this is just a little marriage tip, this is a free one. You know, often we need to do the same thing in our marriage relationship, right? Yes, you need a spontaneous relationship where you just talk and you just enjoy each other's company, but it's good to set aside time too, men. It's good to set aside time with your wives, right? And that can fuel that spontaneous time. Both things need to happen. 
The same thing with our relationship with God. We need you know, ordered time that can help fuel spontaneous time. We need both in a good relationship. The last thing that he says, or that I think he's uh, saying, this is kind of my sum up of the last few verses, is that we need to grow up. It may sound a little harsh, and basically my thesis is he's saying that Jesus grew up, Jesus struggled, Jesus matured, and we need to do that as well. Now, we need to unpack what this looks like. We've got some theological problems we'll unpack in like two minutes here. So, Starting in verse 7, 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Important thing to remember in Christianity is this important truth that Jesus struggled. Again, Jesus wasn't like a disembodied spirit. Right? He really took on flesh. When God became man, he really became man. He was both fully God and fully man. And that's theologically difficult to understand, but the scriptures continue to push that reality. And we can't avoid that. Just because it's difficult to understand doesn't mean it's not true. And Jesus was completely human. And he struggled and he, he cried and he called out to God. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This word learn is the same word you'd use for disciple. So basically he was discipled, he was trained in obedience through what he suffered. Right? Not only was he perfect, right? Sometimes we get all fritzed out on, but well he was God and he was perfect. So we don't even think about the actual living in space and time of him becoming perfect. There was a sense in that he's been perfect from eternity past, but he took on flesh and he learned and he stepped and he walked through obedience. He lived as the perfect human. He was the human that we should have been, right? He was the person that we were supposed to be, that we were designed to be, and he fulfilled that perfectly. And ultimately, that came out in his suffering. Verse 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This needs some little clarification here. I think often in English we think the word perfect means uh, you're, you know, without sin. Really the word in the Greek is a word teleos, which means complete or mature. We're going to see this, verse, or this word in a few more verses. It basically means complete or mature. So he achieved everything that he was supposed to achieve. It doesn't mean he had sin before and then he became perfect, so he didn't have sin anymore. That's not how the word perfect is used in the New Testament. It means complete. It means Jesus did everything he was supposed to do. He lived up to the expectations. Colossians 1 gives us this similar theology that Jesus is both uh, this perfect king by his very existence, by, by being God. His ontology is the philosophical word. In essence, he is God, right? Just by who he is. That's who Jesus is. He's perfect. But also he achieved it as a human. He earned it. Right? None of us can earn salvation. Right? None of us are perfect. None of us can achieve salvation. But Jesus did. Jesus earned it. Jesus achieved salvation by his perfection. He did everything right. He did everything we were supposed to do. And so you have this kind of twin qualifications of Jesus that's talked about in Colossians chapter 1 and the hymn to Christ there in Colossians chapter 1, how he is chief over everything, both by his existence as God and by his achievements as a human. And we have the same thing here. He's perfect. He's the source of eternal salvation. 
He has completed and achieved everything that he should complete. He's, come, he's become mature through his suffering. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, this new priesthood. Like I said, we'll get in more who Melchizedek is. He's this mysterious character, and we'll study that more in coming weeks. But here, we just need to know that he's a different kind of priesthood. He's perfect. He's prophet, priest, and king, and he is without sin. He's achieved a perfect salvation. And I want to give you a little hint of what this looks like. In the next couple of verses, we have two images that are given. We have the image of one who is drinking milk, right? We would call that a baby. Very good. All right. Good audience participation. And then you have one that is eating meat. And the text calls that person mature. Again, same Greek word as perfect, right? So Jesus' maturity looked like suffering. And I want to read this verse now in context. It says, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Literally, you have lazy ears. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We're going to look at this more next week, but I just want to make a small little observation here. A lot of times in Christianity we talk about people knowing the basics and the basics being milk, right? And there's the basics of faith and who Jesus is. And then mature things are are going on to the deeper things of God. And the author's definitely going to hit some mature things. We're going to go into some deep waters here in the next few weeks in Hebrews, some deeper things. But in context here, he's saying the deeper things of the faith, the one who eats meat is the one who suffers, is the one who has grown up, is the one who has persevered. So don't, as as a modern American, don't get confused and think that the deep things of God are just learning more stuff. You hear what I'm saying? That's often a, a problem that we have in the evangelical world. In Bible churches, especially in churches where we teach people to study the Bible, we say, oh, there's the basic things for baby believers, and then there's the deep things of God, right? That means Greek words and systematic theology and all this fancy stuff. That's the really mature people. Well, no, that's not how the Bible paints it. I mean, knowing things may be a part of maturity, but here, maturity, growing up, means willing to suffer. It means perseverance. It means applying the basic, thing, the basic things. Right? We know a lot of basic things that we're not obeying. And we've got to start obeying those basic things that we know. We've got to start suffering for the gospel. We've got to start growing up and being willing to persevere in those things. When we do that, that's when we become deep. That's when we become mature. That's when we begin to grow up. I think there's two ways that, that we suffer, that we grow up in the faith. One is just, of course, specifically enduring difficulty for the sake of the gospel, right? We see this real clearly in a foreign missionary that goes to share the gospel in a dangerous place where they could get killed, and they're being threatened, and it's unsafe, right? That's, that's obvious, and that's clear. Sometimes in our own culture, you can be uh, made fun of, you can be mocked, you can be pushed out socially, you can be ostracized in some ways for your faith. So there are ways that you can even suffer very tangibly for the gospel in our culture. 
But there's also just the general suffering of, of living in a broken world. That's another way that we suffer for Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it like this, and I've mentioned this several times in the last few weeks. The Apostle Paul said that the reason that we still live here is for the sake of the gospel. Paul said, I'd rather die and go to heaven and have everything be perfect. God has left us struggling in this wilderness. God has a purpose for us here, and that purpose is for others. That purpose is to influence others, to bless others, to help others, to love others, to share God's goodness with other people. Your, your purpose in this world is not just to collect a lot of stuff and be happy. That, that's not our purpose. That's a side benefit sometimes, right? Sometimes we get to collect some things. Sometimes God brings us a lot of happiness in this world. But for the most part, the, the view of the scripture is that the real happiness, the real treasure that we're looking forward to is in heaven. And so part of what God is calling you to is to hold fast to him in the midst of difficulty right now. And to draw near to him when hard times come. And as you do that, then you're growing up. Then you're mature. Then you're actually like your big brother Jesus who suffered for you. And then you're willing to suffer for other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the grace that you showed us. That you gave your son Jesus to purchase us, to buy us back. That you left heaven and came to earth to bring us to yourself. Father, I pray that you would give us faith to cling to you, that we would enjoy uh, the rest. As Philippians 4 talks about the supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding, that can guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we live life clinging to you and drawing near to you. Help us to walk in this reality. We pray in Jesus' name.